I should probably introduce myself. My name is Scott Campbell. Uh, my, bar, my wife, uh, Barb, and I moved here about a year ago. Um, I'd say I've probably met about half of you, and the half we've met we really like. Um, <laughs> and so I, I'm guessing the rest of you are probably really nice too. It's not that we've just met the nice half. You're probably all really nice. So if I haven't met you, please introduce yourself to me. Um, if you think of it this week, pray for Pastor Jeff as he uh, and his family are, will be returning. Um, and as you can guess, we are in Leviticus. Um, if I was to ask you what do you think are some of the key passages in Scripture, the really, really important ones, what comes to mind for you? Um, you might think Genesis or Romans 1 or maybe John 3. Um, how many of you immediately thought Leviticus 19? <laughs> you know, you're, no, don't laugh. Um, because Jesus was asked the question in Matthew chapter 22, what is the most important command? And one of the passages he went to was Leviticus 19. You never thought that, did you? Um, before we go, and we are going to look at Matthew 22, and if you flipped over there to see what Jesus had to say, you can keep your uh, finger there. Uh, but we are going to read, since it's a, a, a relatively short passage, we're going to read uh, Leviticus 19, 9 to 18. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord uh, your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. <clears throat> and so now, if you did put your finger in Matthew 22, if you wanted to turn there for a moment. I'm kind of going to, I'm going to do something a little different and give you the end of the message first. Um, because Jesus, as you know, was asked what the greatest commandment was in Matthew 22:34, And I'll just read that for you here. It says that the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And as we know, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and that's the primary command to God's creation is to love the Lord your God. Um, and by the way, <clears throat> if that's the greatest commandment, what's the greatest sin? The greatest sin is to not love the Lord your God, right? And we will often think, well, it's got to be murder, it's got to be this or that. No, the greatest sin is to not uh, love God with all your heart and soul. And um, so I trust this morning that that's the case for us. None of us will ever uh, completely obey that as we ought. But um, if you were thinking you would get to the end of your life and you've been a morally pretty decent person, um, Jesus says here, if you don't love God with all your heart, you have broken the greatest commandment. Um, and then he does something kind of strange, or I found strange. He says, and the second is like it. And I think, well, wait a minute, he didn't ask for a second, right? He asked for the first. And Jesus says, and the second is like it. Um, and the word there for like is the Greek word homois, and we get the word homogenized from it or homogenous, it means the same. So Jesus gives the, the first and greatest commandment is to love God, and then he says, and the second one is really, it's the same commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I say, that's a very different commandment. That, that's not the same commandment. He says it's, it's homoes, it's, it's identical really. I don't know about you, but I, the concept of loving God is, seems very easy to me, right? He's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, he's merciful. My neighbor, not so much. Um, <clears throat> my neighbor's kids kick their soccer ball in my flower bed and they bust stuff and, and he plays music I don't like and, and he likes the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, <clears throat> Jeff, if you're watching, that was for you. Um, but right, I mean, love my neighbor, I, I don't even like him. I mean, but, but I, I have good news for you. The verse does not say, like your neighbor. It says, love your neighbor. Um, in scripture, love, as, as you likely know, has to do with um, acting in a way that's in the best interest of someone. Um, John 3.16 says, not that God liked the world, but that God loved the world, right? So he gave his son. God acted in such a way as for our benefit. We'll have to ask him one day, do, does he like us? I, I don't know. Uh, but it says that God loves us, which is more important, right? And then Jesus says if that in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Every command in all of Scripture has those two principles as their source, love God and love your neighbor. Well, why is that so? Um, you know, in my house, I don't have rules on the fridge that say don't throw the toaster at your wife. You say, oh, do you do, you do that? Well, no, I don't do that. I, I, I love my wife, so I don't have a post-it note that says when the grandkids come over, don't hit them with frying pans. Um, I, I love my grandkids, right? And so the principle is if, if Jesus says, if you love God and love your neighbor, you don't need a lot of rules, right? Um, I think the best commentary on that is perhaps in 1 John 4.20. And I think 
we have a slide for that, so I don't uh, need to turn to it. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Um, so this morning, we're going to look at um, five ways to love your neighbor. And they divide up easily, nicely in Leviticus, because after each... One, um, the passage says either I am the Lord or I am the Lord your God. Um, just to kind of summarize where we are in Leviticus, um, I think Jeff and Luke have done an excellent job of showing us that there's not a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We often can be tempted to think that, that the story of the New Testament is that the loving Jesus comes and he rescues us from the angry Old Testament God. Um, and that is not the story of Scripture at all. Um, when you think of the Old and New Testament, I, I think it's helpful to think of it more of um, fulfillment than replacement. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, uh, not to abolish it. Um, and we have to remember that for the first at least 50, probably 100 years of the church, the Old Testament was their scriptures. And so they got to church every week and someone preached a message on the grace of God from the Old Testament. The grace of God is in the Old Testament and this was uh, the church's scriptures. Um, and I think, and particularly last week, I think Luke did an excellent job of reminding us uh, that in chapter 19, verse 1, that, that Moses says, speak to the congregation, that this is, this is about community. Um, <clears throat> and I think we've seen that just about every area of life was somewhat micromanaged in the law. Um, in the 20th century, there's a lot of debate about bodily autonomy and I'm in control of my body and everything. And uh, in Old Testament Israel, you didn't control anything. Um, from chapters one to seven, the religious offerings were prescribed. You, you didn't give what you wanted to give. It was regulated. Chapters eight to 10, the priestly office was meticulously, meticulously regulated. Chapter 11, your diet was regulated. Chapter 12 to 15, Israel's bodily functions were regulated. Chapter 16, the religious festivals are regulated. Chapter 17, uh, your diet was regulated. Uh, chapter 18, your sex life was regulated. And coming up, we'll see your beard trimming is regulated and your clothing is regulated. There was nothing private about living in Old Testament Israel. Um, and it makes me wonder about <clears throat> um, Adam and Eve had how many rules? One, right? And they couldn't do it. A complete system, Israel fared no better under, right? Paul says in Romans uh, 7, however, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not the law, it's us, right? One rule or several rules, uh, as Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, if the law had been given that could give life, indeed it would have been given. It wasn't that God held back a better law through which we could be saved. Uh, he gave a holy law, but we 
there's no law you can give someone who is by nature a lawbreaker that could save, right? Um, so, Leviticus 19. Um, how do we love our neighbors? First, uh, verses 9 to 10, we love our neighbors through uh, generosity or charity. And we see there regulations about gathering on your land. And, and an Israelite farmer who could get quite wealthy was not to reap his fields entirely and go over them and over them and get every last grape or every last grain seed. They were to leave some. Um, the rabbis taught that you had to leave one-sixtieth, that that was, if you left one-sixtieth of your crop, you had obeyed this command. Um, we see this depicted in the book of Ruth, if you read it there, the, the relationship between uh, Boaz and Ruth. And you'll notice something interesting, and, and I, this is very different than our modern method of social assistance. Um, and I'm not trying to be particularly critical of governments or anything. This is God designed a different method, however. If we were living today, we would say to the farmer, yes, you gather as much as you can and go over it a second time and third time if you want and gather as much grain and grapes as you can. And then we will send someone over from the government who will take half of it. Um, and if you're unemployed, you stay at home and you wait and we'll send you a, a, a check. Um, but God does something very different. He has the farmer leave some of his crop and then the person who's poor has the privilege of labor and work, but they do have to work. They go to the field and they gather. And, and I think that maintains the dignity for that person. They're not receiving a handout. They go to the field and they work and they gather. And, and you all know the satisfaction from a, a, a day of hard work and your muscles are sore a little bit, but you know you, you did a good job and you worked hard and you provided for your family. And um, what about today? Um, you might be tempted to think, I might be tempted to think, well, the government takes a lot more than one-sixtieth from me so they can look after the poor, right? They're getting a lot more than the rabbis told those people to give. So I've done my part. They're somebody else's responsibility. But uh, the, the passage is not about percentages, right? It's about the, the, the heart and, and our concern uh, for those who are in need around us. Psalm 146 says, Blessed is he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Uh, so God still calls us to be generous today. So that was the first way to love your neighbor that they were instructed was through uh, generosity. Second, verses 11 and 12, we are to love our neighbors through honesty. Um, some commentators think this is only for a legal courtroom setting, and it'll certainly include that, as we'll see, but I think it's, it's includes that and then more so. Um, we love our neighbors by being honest with them. And it is, it's interesting, the first part of verse 11, it says it groups stealing in with being honest. So we're not to steal, uh, but we're also not to deal falsely or lie to one another. And I think those go together because they were frequently in the realm of commerce in Israel. So if you come to me and you're buying my goat and you say to me, Scott, is that goat healthy? And I say, oh yes, it's a very healthy goat. 
and you get it home and it dies in 20 minutes. Um, and maybe you, you take me to court and you say, he said the goat was healthy. And maybe I knew it wasn't, right? And so I compound the sin. I was greedy. I knew the goat was going to die. It wasn't going to be good for anything. So I sold it to you. But So I lied to you and told you the goat was healthy. And you take me to court. And now, and as we'll see in this verse, I compound the sin. I, I go to court and I say, no, no, no. He must have, he, he heard it on the way home. It was perfectly fine when he picked up the goat from me. And so now I slander you in court. And I say, you're, you're the liar, right? And, and so this verse prohibits that and so I'm to um, I'm to love you by being honest with you in Romans 6:19, Paul talks about the the cascading effect of sin and he says in 6:19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. <clears throat> Excuse me, what does lawlessness lead to? Paul says more lawlessness. There's every lie we might tell makes the next lie a little easier, right? And um, <clears throat> my wife was an English teacher, so these sorts of things come to mind. I think of the Robert Frost poem, The Road Not Taken, and he says in that poem, knowing how way leads on to way, each path you take is a path to somewhere, right? And so the lie you choose leads to the next one. Um, and so to do this, and, and uh, he puts material gain above honesty, above your character, and above loving your neighbor. And um, in verse 12, he says, when you... You do this and you go to court and you take an oath and you swear falsely, it profanes the name of God, uh, the one we uh, claim to worship and the God of truth. We, we deceive by taking an oath in his name. He calls that profanity. Um, very serious. So we love our neighbor through our generosity, our honestly, our honesty, and thirdly, our refusal to exploit our neighbor. <clears throat> Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. And particularly um, in mind here is wages. Um, we're to pay our uh, workers that day. Day laborers uh, in this uh, time needed the wage for the day for an evening meal. Um, it's not like today where you might get paid bi-weekly or weekly or even monthly. Um, they relied on that uh, to feed their family. James talks about the same thing in James 5.4. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Uh, and the cries of the harvesters have uh, reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And uh, Deuteronomy 24 has the same thing. And the Bible presents a very strong case that you don't want to be the reason that people pray to God for rescue. Like, God save me from the oppression of that guy. You don't want people praying to God about y your op oppressiveness because scripture is very strong in saying the Lord, if, if all they've got is to go to the Lord about your behavior, he will hear them and will answer them. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 9, 9 says the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And he also mentions um, 
at the end of verse 14, not to curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Um, those are just examples of disadvantage. It doesn't mean that someone else who had some form of disability, it was open season on them because God only lists uh, the, the, the deaf and the blind. Those were just examples. And you know, in, in, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, what nation is there that has laws like this? And, and frankly, for 3000 BC, these are remarkable uh, to have rules for justice towards laborers, for um, care for the poor and the disadvantaged. Frankly, they were just unheard of in, in that time. We've seen, you know, quarantine of people who had contagious diseases that were not known how they spread for thousands of years. I mean, God's law was uh, quite remarkable. Number four, so we not only love our neighbor through generosity, honesty, and not exploiting them, but also through a commitment to justice in verse 15. And this is particularly a, a legal, a courtroom setting. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And this might seem a little odd in light of what he has just said about caring for the poor. Now he says that when you get to court um, that you don't do any injustice and that you're not partial to the poor or defer to the rich. And it might be tempting to think, well, the guy's poor and uh, there's a rich guy and a poor guy and the rich guy's got a better case, but he's rich. I'll just, you know, I'll just uh, make a decision in favor of the poor guy because he's poor. And uh, this passage says, no, you, that you're not to do that, that cases are to be decided on the basis of truth and justice because God is just. Um, and so... Not only that, but then in verse um, 16 says, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people or stand up against the life of your neighbor. And so if whether you're a judge, he says you're to judge rightly, um, or if you're a witness in court, you're to give a testimony rightly, particularly um, in a capital case. He talks about standing up against the life of your neighbor. If you go to court and and you're untrue in a case where someone's life is at stake, that would be uh, particularly uh, problematic. Um, and at the time this was written, the judge was probably an elder in the neighborhood. It wasn't like today where we have professional legal system with professional judges and lawyers. It was probably an elder or, or a, a group of elders. And so they're your neighbors and uh, maybe your family. And so the possibility of being partial um, really needed to be held in, in, in check. Um, you know, it makes me think when I read that about uh, Caiaphas in John 11, where after Jesus has raised Lazarus, he says, you know, it's better that we kill and frame one innocent guy, right, than that the Romans come down on us, and so let's frame this guy and have him put to death. That was the high priest who said that, right, who was supposed to be the custodian of these rules. Um, and, and particularly what is said particularly here, you really don't want to do that in a capital case where someone's life is at stake, but, but Caiaphas had... Uh, Christ framed, right? And so, um, very bad. Um, finally, we 
love our neighbor through heartfelt friendship, verses 17 and 18, which are really um, a summary statement of the verses that have come before, and it moves as, as it should from outward behavior to the condition of the heart. Um, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Um, so he says, if your neighbor has wronged you in some way, the, in, it says you shall reason frankly, and, and it's not my favorite translation. The words normally translated, you shall rebuke or to correct him. And so this has to do with your neighbor's done something wrong against you. He says, don't, don't do what we most commonly do. Don't go home and brood about it and get mad about it, which leads to, he says, then to wanting to take vengeance. Well, you know, I know he every Tuesday he golfs. I could go slash his tires or whatever, right? He, just go to him, quickly go to him and rebuke him, he says. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was found a document in that community that said you could not take someone to court unless you could first prove you went to them and rebuke them privately. And if you hadn't done that, they said, don't bring your matter before the courts if you haven't gone to that person first. Uh, kind of like that. Um, and of course, it's not easy to rebuke someone, right? It's not easy to receive criticism. It's not easy to give criticism. Charles Spurgeon said something about receiving criticism that I thought was helpful. He said, brothers, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no better by the correction. Um, he go. I didn't do the full quote and maybe I should have he said if, he compared it to artwork and he says if someone's painting your portrait and you look at it and you think that's kind of ugly he says all he would need to do to correct it was to add some black splotches and then it's a little more accurate and um, so there's something to receiving correction there, there needs to be a humility but of course there needs to be a humility in giving correction doesn't there in, in Matthew 7 Jesus says if you're going to go correct someone and talk to them about the splinter in their own eye, you should take the log out of your own eye first, right? And so rebuking is a delicate skill. You know, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 6, he rebukes the church in Corinth because of all the lawsuits that were going on there, uh, people suing one another. And I think if, if they'd practiced this a little better, just private correction, private discourse, um, it would go better. And of course, Deuteronomy 32 says, vengeance is mine. Uh, the Lord will vindicate his people. Um, in his time, God holds the guilty accountable. That is not our job. Our job is to cultivate um, a friendship out of, out of love. And so, as I said at the beginning, that doesn't mean you have to like your neighbor, but you have to behave in such a way to promote their benefit. And generally, if you'll do that, you'll find you might even like them after a while, right? Even if they like the Montreal Canadiens. Um, you know, just in conclusion, um, Augustine taught that we are 
most fundamentally shaped not by what we believe or what we think, but by what we love. <clears throat> he wrote, when we ask whether someone is a good person, we are not asking what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. And so when Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and to uh, love your neighbors yourself, I think if we uh, would uh, practice those, that would be great. And I can't help but think, you know, if our church was known in the community, if people said, you know, I know a bunch of people that, that go to that church and they care for the poor like crazy and they're committed to being meticulously honest and um, ethical in their dealings, um, that's not as common as we might like and that would get noticed. And I just thought that this morning's passage was particularly apt as we come to the table.